Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is the 26th of September. I guess we're going to be putting this out on the 28th. It's a new schedule that we have now where instead of one day before, we record it two days before. I don't know why we do that. I guess we could just go back to our Tuesday schedule so that nothing... <laughs> anyway, this is all just to say that Time if something difference. happens in the world yeah. and we're behind it, then we apologize. But um, I'm very excited about our guest today. Um, oh, by the way, Tammy's here. Tammy, where are you? Tammy, can you explain where you are? <laughs> Jay's cracking up at my background. So I finally moved into the place that I'm renting for most of the time that I'm in Korea. Um, it's owned, <laughs> I'm subletting it from a Zambian immigrant and she has all this like really kitschy like African decor in the house. So if you guys see my curtains, it's like a, like a safari scene. Like well, curtains you would buy red at like, and they have at elephants, like Daiso. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's interesting. Well, because when you came on, I was, you know, because this is our, for those who don't know, the ongoing thing is T Tammy is never in the same place twice. <laughs> today, Tammy seems to be, she came on the screen. I was like, where are you? Are you in like a youth hostel somewhere? Um, but apparently you are. You're at a youth hostel. No, no. It's, it's a nice Korean apartment, but it's like, the decor is like not my style. Do you, is it a youth hostel vibe? No, no. Or it's just a... It's no, it's like a really nice apartment. Yeah. And I'm okay. like an hour and a half south of Seoul. So it's like a kind of small country town feeling. It's nice. Okay, cool. Well, um, <laughs> our guest today, I'm sorry to be distracted, is uh, Jennifer Wilson. Jennifer is a contributing essayist at the New York Times Book Review and a contributing writer for The Nation. She's also an adjunct instructor at the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at the City University of New York, which I, I agree is like that's that is a lot of work. <laughs> you got it. you did it though you got it all out. Not going to get an email from Comms. <laughs> Graduate School of Journalism at the City University of New York is that on One Thirty Seventh Street? Uh, no, it's on Forty First Street. Midtown. Oh, on Forty First yeah. Street. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Is that just the graduate school or City College is 137th, right? No, this is CUNY, though. Oh, it's CUNY. It's different. Okay. Yeah. Okay. This is just the J school. It's just the J school by itself. So. Right. And among other things, you are a big Sixers fan. You know, I am a big Sixers fan, but after a really long hiatus, um, I took a break like during the process years. Uh -huh. um, and had a little detour when I was really just kind of like following, I can't believe I'm admitting this, but I was a really big James Harden fan. <laughs> I know everyone just was like, I, you know, <laughs> it's like, it's like being like a imagine dragons fan or something like that. Like, like, you know, I was a dragon head <laughs> or like an imagine. Head. It was like a confession <laughs> session. Why in the world were you a James Harden fan? I have a Harden, um, like Houston Rockets jersey. I have a Harden oh, Nets wow. jersey. And now I'm, you know, happy to say like everything has come back together and I have a Harden Sixers t-shirt. I'm from Philly. So, you know, Harden's come to my city. I was, um, <laughs> so like I said, yeah, I have to explain myself. Um, so like I said, I had taken a hiatus from basketball and then kind of got into it a, like in 2017, 2018 again. And it was during the kind of Warriors dynasty. And I really like sort of having grown up on Iverson, you know, covered in tattoos, kind of, you know, 
sort of like flying in the face of respectability politics, I was like really offended by like, you know, the sort of like the clean cut kind of Christian kind of mm. theocracy of the, <laughs> of right. the that's how I saw it at the time of the Golden State Warriors, like Aisha Curry, <laughs> like, you know, in the kitchen. Like, I know that's like, she's really into cooking in a serious way. But at the time, I just sort of saw someone like sort of like kind of cosplaying like 50s housewife stuff. And um, I just kind of got, I was just like really offended. And all I knew was that there was this guy who could bring it all down and his name was James Harden and he went to strip clubs. Yeah. <laughs> Those are the two first things that, that, that people know about him. Be like, Well, it seems like James Harden's awesome. name is James Harden. And secondly, he goes to a lot of strip clubs. So I was like, yes, yes. And so I just rooting for him uh, for much no other reason uh yeah so just um so yeah I became kind of a James Harden fan and uh just you know kind of couldn't give him up for a while and then and now he's a sixer so it's perfect it's perfect that's awesome you know, I get to no one really sort of finds it weird that I'm rooting for James Harden for the first time in three years because I can just say I'm rooting for my home team Right, right. Um, and you have like, a, I don't know, that seems actually like a quite good, I think your reasoning is pretty good. But it wasn't like LeBron that you weren't like, oh, LeBron can take down this theocracy of the of the Warriors. I, I also kind of had a very, very allergic rea- reaction to the Warriors after their first successful year. Um, mostly because like the tie in with tech you know, and the idea yeah. like, oh, this is the, it's almost like they're promoting it as like the new America almost, right? Like, yeah, we're raceless, you know, like <laughs> Steph Curry is this like perfect Under Armour, like even the Under Armour yeah, thing where like Under Armour yeah, is like such a shitty company. And then, you know, they're like, oh, you know, like we're, we're building ourselves all on this clean cut image. And then you have like the other players who, you know, like Draymond had some personality, but the other guys are like, definite personalities but definitely not like the iverson mole that you're talking about um and then it was seen as like it was just beloved by everybody right yeah yeah it was to preview something we'll talk about it became like the norm you know? <laughs> <laughs> like the idealized norm right like yeah. you're like why can't all teams be like this um Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. I don't know. I found I've since I've since come around. I've since, you know, I was I was happy for for Clay after his kind of, you know, injuries to right. win again. They're you know, that's the you know, they're very nice people. It's Right. <laughs> they're all those guys are really nice, good people, but it's just it was kind of like I was judging them based on sort of what everyone was projecting onto them. Um, <laughs> yeah, Steph is my defense of Steph Curry is always that like whenever he's interviewed he always seems like he's actually just saying things, you know, like there's nothing particularly forced <laughs> about him. Like he just like is answering things in what seems like a very honest and normal way. And it's like, it's such a contrast to like LeBron, for example, where everything is like so painfully cringe in some ways, right? Where he's just yeah. like, everything is like, he thinks that you don't know, but he knows, but that you don't know that he's like, <laughs> Do, really doing this for his image you know but like and then you're just like no we all see <laughs> like just, just like, what are you talking about this is so obvious you know and everything's like well my legacy this i'm just like dude like you're the second <laughs> best player of all time you know? <laughs> your legacy's fine 
Yeah, that's why I didn't pick LeBron as my fighter. That's why I picked Harden, you know. He's not... <laughs> Harden's clearly not, the, you know, much to my frustration. He doesn't seem to be too concerned about his legacy. Yeah, no, 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 no. He seems to just be... I don't know. There's almost something you respect about it. He's like, well, yeah. I made a lot of money and I scored a lot of points. And, um, you know, um, I'm just going to be fine. I'm going to hang out with my friend Daryl in Philly. <laughs> okay, well, we wanted to bring up, um, I don't know how much we need to talk about this, but I wanted to bring up basketball because of um, these two stories that have happened, right? And I don't know how much you've been paying attention to it, Jem, but, you know, that I imagine that like other people on social media, you couldn't escape it. The first is the Ime Yudoka story, which is, you know, still developing. Yeah. I really thought that we would Confusing. know all the details by today. But yeah. I find it really weird that we don't. But um, I don't know. I don't even need to explain to the people the podcast. If you don't know, then just Google it. It's fine. But <laughs> all of you probably know. And the second is uh, Robert Sarver's story of the, you know, being sort of depending on who you ask, right, either sort of deciding on himself or being kind of very, very not gently pushed to sell his basketball team. Um, but I don't know. Like, let's talk about the Yudoka thing more specifically. Yeah. Like, I don't know. What would you What'd you make of all of this as like a basketball fan? Yeah. I mean, the way I found out about it was I think um, the word consensual was trending on Twitter, oh, wow. um, which was, I mean, what you would expect um, from right. conversation oh my God. about, um, yeah, consensuality on, uh, on Twitter. Um, you know, I mean, I also find it really kind of. You know, at first they were like, we're not going to release any details out of concern for people's privacy. But it's just, I don't know, with like time, you're just kind of like wondering, like, you know, it just feels more and more like they're protecting Udoka, like than the the other people involved. But, um, you know, I don't know. I really think it's more, to be honest, almost more of a media story. Um, like, I think, you know, like one of the articles I saw after it came out, well, it started, you know, I think first it was like Woj had a very kind of a, like vague, had a kind of vague tweet. And then Shams Tarania, the athletic, tweeted the thing about it being a consensual, inappropriate consensual mm-hmm. relationship. And like one of the stories was like, who won this round? Woj or Shams? Right, right. And people just kind of like, there's been this like, you know, thing about which one of them can break news about trades, you know, first. And I think you sort of saw like what happens when that kind of style of media coverage gets applied to something where things are more complicated, you know, where you had people um, just sort of, sort of, you know, kind of debating the the bit about, you know, consensual relationships in the workplace. And then eventually it came out the next day that there was more to it and that there were kind of, you know, unwanted comments and that this was, you know, a much murkier situation but because of that rush to like, you know, get the tweet out faster, um, I just, you know, I just think this was really a failure of, of, of media, of sports media. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm glad you put it that way. I, that's, that's mostly what I've been focused on myself, you know, and the other part of the machine that's built up is that you have this totally like untethered meme culture. That's all jokes that has risen out of it that when it's stuff like nba trades or kevin durant says something or kyrie irving says something crazy then it's like it can be very entertaining because it's very low stakes you know it's just like oh no someone got traded and then 
the fans start doing it. But like the second that anything is not just like, oh, this player was traded for this player, it just breaks down into like a farce of journalism, right? And that that's what I think it was. I mean, it's just like, yeah. I don't know if it's anyone's fault, you know? Like, I don't know if like, once you have that news, you have to report it, right? Like even if you... um but the speed with which they reported it and then the the whole consensual part of it that Shams reported, right, where it's just like it seemed like he was very much putting some things to rest. Like it was very pointed in that way. I don't know who that information came from. Yeah, I was wondering if that it too. didn't come from the Yudoka camp, then I would be very surprised. But they had had no contact with the woman and we don't know anything about her. Right. Still. So Nothing yeah, that's been, a, that's been another part of the, right. the story so, too. Yeah, it was it like was a hole really... in the center of the story, basically. Right. And then you had, you know, people on not even just social media, like everyone wants to just say, oh, this is Twitter gone crazy. But, you know, you had people on journalists on ESPN basically calling for this other person to be named. Um, you know, and I see. which was, again, I mean, it was just like really sort of shocking and kind of to me just seems like this is what happens to your brain when you're just kind of addicted to scoops. And um, yeah, it was just, um, you know, we got kind of a preview of this, though, with the whole Kyrie COVID stuff where Shams basically was just kind of like his mouthpiece and just right. reporting anything that he said and not really vetting anything. Um, and, you know, and, you know, Alex Shepard had a really good piece about that in um, the New Republic about just kind of like the problems of that kind of the kind of the woe shams kind of style of journalism. And I think this is just That's kind of the newest, the newest kind of like, you know, evidence that there's something wrong with it. Could you guys just say, though, for people like me, like, <laughs> it, who is Udoka? Is he like a prominent person? Is this like a surprising thing to come out of the Celtics? Like, what is the kind of general ecosystem that this is arising within? He's Nia Long's husband. Right. That's he like is. all I know. So, I mean, is that like, but like, is yeah. he the kind well, you of know person people that people are, like... would expect this from? Like, is he creepy? Like, do people care about him? Like, what well, is... he's only been a coach for a year, so people don't yeah. really know. But, um, okay. but yeah, but I was, I was going to say, like, well, you know how everyone was saying, like, everyone cares more about the Udoka thing than Brett Favre stealing millions of dollars. And I kind of wanted part of it. I was like, look, 70% of the whole, um, Yudoka responses people being like how dare you to yeah. <laughs> nail <laughs> that's how I found out about it <laughs> which I look as a uh, as an avid childhood viewer of the Fresh Prince of Bel Air like I also like kind of understood you know because like everyone else I was just like oh my god is this the most beautiful person I've ever seen <laughs> but like it was uh, I don't know he's uh, it's hard to tell because he is a new coach Right. But like this idea that coaches are having affairs with people on their staff is not new. You know, Um, it should not be surprising to anybody. And I think that was what sort of drove some of the response from journalists who who are like in the know. But at the same time, they were basing this all on that word consensual. Yeah. That was tweeted in the most cryptic way possible. And everyone just took that as fact. Right. When if anyone who had any type of logic about this would understand, we're like, this is the hottest young coach in the NBA. Okay. He is in Boston, right? Which like you can say Boston, LeBron James just came out and said like Boston's the most racist city in the NBA, right? <laughs> they deal with this 
legacy all the time. The idea that they don't want like a successful young black coach, it, like to help address some of that stuff is crazy, you know, like, like, and like, it's like, he's, it was in a position where the idea and he went to the finals last year. Right. And all the young players seem to like him. And it's just like, all right, well to have this guy no longer be the coach for a year, like, which, you know, effectively is a firing because obviously he's not going to come back after yeah, a year. I see. Well, you, I mean, no, I'm telling you, there have been people on um, Kendrick Perkins on ESPN has been saying, well, if this is consensual, then we need, again, going off of that word, um, you know, then we need to, you know, there's two, you know, it takes two to tango. Why isn't this other person being named? Wow. And then um, Malika Andrews, um, uh, who's a young female reporter, um, on ESPN, um, you know, was basically trying to stop him from, you know, honestly embarrassing yeah. himself and was just like, you know, there was an investigation by a law firm and the law firm came out with the conclusion that there was one person who broke the policy and she's been absolutely just kind of, you know, there are, all of these kind of like YouTube videos, like, oh, watch, watch someone put Malika Andrews in her place. Like there's, yeah. she's been oh the gosh. object of like a lot of misogynist attacks. And, um, you know, it's been really hard wow. to, to watch, you know, her um, be in that position with, you know, her older male colleagues. That's yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, I, the, you're right though. The media part of it is really the one, you know, it's the only thing you can really dig your teeth into because we don't know about yeah. anything else. And at some level it's, it's bad. It's unsurprising. And it's also like in some ways typical that a very empowered coach would behave in these sorts of ways. I don't, you know, I don't know. It's like you go back, you look at some of the stories that people don't report or you just hear about with other coaches. Like there's, you know, it's all sorts of stuff, you know, and um, and that part is the unsurprising part that, you know, people just behave badly within an NBA organization, right? Like, it's like kind of what they do. Um, all right. Well, um, let's uh, let's move on and let's talk about Graham. <laughs> Graham <laughs> I think I teed it up a couple times by saying, <laughs> <laughs> but Jen, we gave you the well, choice of <laughs> we like gave you the, critiques of Jenny, Why people. don't you introduce us? I feel like I've been talking forever. So yeah, do you <laughs> want to introduce okay. us? Yeah. Uh, well, we wanted to have Jen on because she's obviously really cool and um, a friend of the pod, but also because um, Jay's been doing a lot more culture book stuff. I also am interested in book stuff. And we think Jen is one of the great critics working today because she not only writes really well and about a variety of really interesting subjects, but she always inserts like a political economy angle while still grappling with like race and other issues that we care about. And so we wanted to learn a little bit more about kind of and your philosophy of like book reviewing and why you choose the subjects you do. Um, folks may also know that Jen is a Russianist, like she has a PhD and everything. So she's like a bona fide, like specialist, not like Jay and me. Um, and um, you may have seen her stuff in all of the great publications. But one of the pieces you sent us, Jen, is um, a thing you wrote in book forum on Gramsci. And you were telling us that Gramsci has been really kind of important to you in your development as a critic. So do you want to say a little bit more about that? and explain who Gramsci is briefly for folks who may not know. 
Um, yeah, no. So I wrote my um, senior thesis in college <laughs> on Gramsci. Um, so do not sweet. ask me. Do not ask <laughs> me. <know. laughs> it's so, so precocious. <laughs> <laughs> Can everyone go around and say what their senior thesis was on so I don't oh feel God. so... Oh, yeah, I can. So mine, was a, uh, mine was about, oh, um, oh, what was it about? It was about like something about rap music in the Black Korean conflict during the LA riots. Oh, nice. The most, yes, if you could guess, then yes, <laughs> that was it. <laughs> yeah, it actually was that, yeah. Um, um, yeah, but, uh, you know, um, so yeah, I reviewed a new biography of Gramsci and I really actually, um, did not know that much about his early life because he's known primarily, um, for these, um, kind of, you know, notebooks that he wrote, the they're called the prison notebooks. Yeah. And, um, he wrote them while he was, um, he had been imprisoned by Mussolini's government and he was a communist. Um, so he was, um, put in jail by the fascists. And he, before that, had been, um, you know, a, a critic, really, primarily. He reviewed primarily kind of like theater. Um, and, um, you know, then he, um, when he was in prison, he wanted to sort of continue. He'd been kind of like a communist, kind of like a Marxist cultural critic, um, really sort of interested in kind of the values that, you know, different kind of, you know, novels or or plays kind of communicated. Um, he was really interested in this idea of kind of common sense and the way that kind of capitalism likes to present itself as a kind of like, you know, the kind of the common sense um, kind of rationale um, through cultural texts. And um, when he was in prison, um, he just did not really have that much access to the um, kind of the material that he had before. And so he actually um, relied quite a, a lot on the prison library, um, you know, sort of popular fiction, um, genre fiction, um, devotional literature. So he's very much someone who was interested in kind of um, kind of mass culture and mm -hmm. what kind of um, values are being communicated, um, how commun how capitalist values were communicated um, through mass culture. Um, and yeah, I just think it just sort of has always kind of, I don't sort of go into books being like, I'm going to identify, <laughs> um, capitalist common sense is sort of like articulated through the new, right. you know, I'm just looking at, you know, my bookshelf, the new Jennifer Egan or the new Ella Botchman. Um, but you know, I do think <laughs> I am. <laughs> <laughs> but I could. Um. <laughs> That's such a good threat. <laughs> if you said that to Watch me, I'd be, like, no, I'd be like, listen, can we talk? <laughs> um, I don't, yeah. 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 But, uh, but yeah, but that is, it's always sort of in the back of my, my mind, kind of like sort of why a writer is making the choices yeah. that they're making and kind of what, um, and I think I sort of see that do that actually, I would say a bit more. I also review some um, TV. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I think I sort of do that actually like sort of a bit more. I'm really interested in the choices that um, kind of corporations think are going to work and sell better. Yeah. I don't know. I've, I end up, I think about this a lot too, right? And it, mostly in the presentation of race by like mass outlets, right? Um, and in particular, like mass sort of purportedly liberal outlets right and 
obviously the reason why I do that is because I write about race for a lot of these outlets, you know, and I have this constant thought of like, well, why do, why do they choose who they choose to do, to write about the things? And what is it about those people outside of like, whatever, like ability to write? A lot of people can write, you know, um, that makes them more palatable or like, okay, or whatever. I mean, and you know, like, I think like, I guess I thought about this a lot. I can talk about this now because I'm no longer employed by that company. But, you know, I thought about this a lot in the context of like the 1619 project, right? Like, mm. where it's just like, what is, like, if you use this type of analysis, right, for the 1619 project and you're like, okay, the New York Times is coming out and they're going to have this as their big statement, right? And it was, it was a big event for people saying like, oh, it was just a magazine issue like like come on you know like they printed tote bags of that of this like within the within the office like it was meant to be a big event um and i think that you know to their credit the people who worked on it will also tell you it was meant to be a big event i just think that like some people like to minimize and say silly things all the time but like the people who worked on it including like nicole or whatever will tell you it was meant to be a big event um you know like what about it makes it is it fair to use that type of analysis for for conversations about race like that right and I, I don't know I always think about it just obviously like in terms of myself it's like why am I the person writing some of this stuff you know um I don't know what do you like like does it apply to things like at that level or like is that are those things that you think about um you know I don't write that much about the particular authors that you know who I review like I'm not sort of thinking you know why why this writer? Um, but I do think sometimes, you know, um, for instance, I think more about that in terms of the plot. So I think, for instance, you know, there was a book that um, I actually sort of considered reviewing, but then didn't um, because I just, uh, you know, I, I didn't have great things to sort of say about it. And I'm always a little anxious about writing kind of a pan of a debut novel. Um, But it was this book, um, uh, The Other Black Girl, and it was kind of like a get out meets the publishing industry book. It was kind of this like sort of horror story about um, someone who a young black woman who worked in publishing written by some of a young black woman who used to work in publishing. (laughs) And it was, you know, kind of being pitched as like, you know, this book about like kind of like race and the publishing industry and um, was getting just like, you know, tremendous amount of attention. I think it was a pretty big book deal. Um, you know, I think there was already conversations about adapting it. You know, wow. um, anytime something is get the get out of something, it just seems to just attract a lot <laughs> of money and stuff. And um, I read the book and you, know, you start to think, okay, what's the book about racism in the publishing industry that the publishing industry wants out there and is willing to give a lot of money to and when I was reading it and I think some of the um I saw only one other critic um critic at Slate talk about this but like the representations of white people in the publishing industry are so kind of like hyperbolically racist yeah uh, like so sort of like cartoonishly racist um, you know, like their black female characters are just kind of like a pastiche of like stereo, like all these really offensive stereotypes and they like don't get what the big deal is. And I just was like, okay, so that makes sense why so many white people I know in publishing really like this book right. because they don't see themselves in this. Yeah. Right, right. 
Um, so yeah, I am always like sort of like aware, um, you know, I'm always thinking about that, like, why is, you know, I think you have to do that particularly when something's like a really big book. Yeah. Um, uh, or, you know, really big, you know, really big show, like kind of why are, why is this the one that everyone wants to, what story is this telling that people want out there? It sounds right. like the help of, you know, it's like that kind of thing where it's like, but it yeah, wasn't like, that more like the help was super earnest, right? Like the, you're talking about the, Emma yeah, Stone but I mean, movie. I think it's the same thing where it's like when you have the stock racist characters, like those are the sorts of things that the big companies will invest in because it's very easy and it kind of lets everyone off the hook and becomes this sort of um, allegorical thing that has nothing to do with you. This is something I was like talking to a friend about. We we're talking about like, kind of like representation, um, just as kind of like a, a critical framework. And I think that so often when people sort of like read a book by person of color and they sort of want to evaluate it on the basis of representation I notice they just tend to only really focus on how that person of color is represented and how minorities are represented and that becomes that swallows up the whole conversation um and I thought what that, that book kind of opened up for me is like why don't we talk about representations of white people and whiteness in kind of like the same way um also there are too many books about writers yeah, this is something it's I complain so about all the time. I complain about it all the time, and I get into trouble sometimes. Um, but yeah, yeah. writers yeah, writing I, about writers—it's so tedious. Yeah, I, I know. I thought I thought that when I was like twenty-three years old in MFA program, and I but I was a very impetuous young man, you know. And most of my classmates were a little bit older than me, and they had been living in New York, and I had just moved to New York from Maine, you know. And I was just like yo, why are you guys all just writing about being writers in Brooklyn? It's so boring. You know, like I know I'm your friend and I don't even care about you. You know, like why would you? <laughs> but, then, but then I was kind of shamed very quickly into like, you know, like where I'd be like, oh, no, I get it. You know, but I didn't really get it. You know, because they'd just be like, listen, it's like about meta yeah. something, meta this. Mm -hmm. Or like, and I'd be like, yes, that word that I did not learn. <laughs> yeah. and, just, and so I just like kind of relented, you know, I was like, it's okay. You know, everybody's just writing these sort of loosely autobiographical books about writers. <laughs> but um, yeah, you know, yeah. It's, the, the representation thing that you're talking about, I, I find it very interesting too. I just find it interesting that people use it as a choice at all for criticism, right? Because it's like, it's in some ways it's like kind of boring, right? Like yeah, it's just like, well, why would this person is shows like, that these people exist. And then the question comes up always, which is just like, okay, like, who's this, who are you talking about here? You know, like who needs to know that these people exist, <laughs> right? Like I was um, watching something and it was like, somebody was talking about how, about Koreans and they were saying, um, you know, like I want everyone to know that Koreans are really funny, you know? Um, and I was like, who is everyone? <laughs> <laughs> that's so bizarre it's like first of all if you listen to this podcast you would know that you know <laughs> Secondly, i was like what is the like who's everyone like like how can that possibly be a mission it's so like subjugated in some sort of way right like and it's so clearly trained on white people right like like it just seems like that's where all this stuff about white gays and stuff like that i can sometimes yeah. like sometimes i roll my eyes about it, like listen come on like calm down a little but that part is like, those are the places where like, it really does feel very relevant, right? Like what, what is the politics here if it's just about convincing 
white people that like trying to create the perfect, most humanized version of a minority for white people to understand that like we are like people, you know, like it's just like a strange impulse to me that I, I, I don't know. I just personally <laughs> have always kind of rejected, but it does drive like the big, big books and the big, big movies, right? Like that's, that's sort of what drives those things, I think. Um, I, th- I think it's like, I mean, this is something, um, you know, I think it does such a disservice to um, to books written by people of color who aren't always really, actually, for the most part, are not concerned with that. Yeah. That's not what they're right. writing towards. But that's just kind of like the prism through which like their work is evaluated. And that's something I thought about a lot with Raven Leilani's Luster. Um, I just remember just like, being just kind of inundated with these, you know, headlines of like, you know, the complicated black woman, like Raven Lilani wants to show that black women can make mistakes or it don't have to be like, and it's just like, I felt like that was just so imposed on her and um, was just such a big part of the rollout of that book. And then mm-hmm. when you actually read the book, it's so much more about just like, you know, being an artist under capitalism and just having these like irrational desires at the same time that you have these basic needs and like just kind of figuring out how those two things can kind of sit side by side yeah. or if they can at all. And just that whole thing got even got completely, and you know, you know some people were kind of upset because um, Pearl Sagan wrote a kind of a critical review of luster in the New York times. And I was just so grateful that someone was talking that it about was language. Right. Yeah. That, all, yeah. That, that someone was just like, kind of like evaluating it um, as a, you know, as a novel in and of itself and looking at and kind of treating it like a work of art instead of just kind of some sort of like political kind of, you know, moment or something. Yeah. I had started that novel and I didn't actually really like it, but I really appreciated what you wrote about it. Um, in Lux and we can link to it in the show notes because you were talking about like her labor, like gig work, the things she was trying to do to survive and kind of make it. And I thought that was a really good, great gloss. And I think that's something mm-hmm. you do really well is sort of pick out like what is actually going on here. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. But I was, I was, uh, I was thinking about what Jay said about like the white gaze in another kind of context, like, um, you know, um, so uh, I was talking to someone about that show, Indian Matchmaking. Oh, God. And um, <laughs> we had an episode hus- on that a long time ago. But <laughs> my, hu- my husband is from uh, India and someone was just sort of like, oh, do you know, does he watch that? And I was like, no, he just, he, he just wouldn't watch a dating show, period, like Indian, not Indian. Um, but they basically were sort of like, but isn't he so like excited for, you know, finally, like there's representation. And I just was like, are you not like, there's all of Bollywood, like there's a huge Indian, like, um, film and TV (laughs) industry. Like there's all of these, like, if he really wants to see himself, he can just, you know, like (laughs) there are just so many opportunities. And then you realize like, is this about like, want people wanting to see themselves or like them wanting white people to see that they're also on Netflix and like you know it just becomes right. like like why is this representation in a way that you know Bollywood films or you know or Indian TV shows you know made and produced in India like are not representation 
Um, yeah. I think there is something about that where it's like this specific space that you're in is actually what the cultural cachet is at the point where people who are mostly like well-educated, well-off, you know, cultural consumers, they do care about the status part of it a lot. And that the, and then also what the, what networks can like, uh, sort of comport a different type of like seriousness, for example. Right. And then, um, so yeah, I think that a show on Netflix, it's in some way people would immediately say that it's a bigger advance because they did it, you know, as opposed to, I don't know, like the CW or something like that, right? And that I, I, I've, I've, I've always found that to be a little bit confusing too, you know. We're just like, well, we finally got a Netflix show. We're like, there's seven thousand Netflix shows. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's a lot of Asians on a lot of them, you know. In fact, it, whenever I open it up, it's like ninety percent Korean people, you know, <laughs> That's what just it's staring back at me. You know? yeah. <laughs> like, um, but yeah, it's uh, that I've I've always like this conversation. It's always been um, in the book publishing industry. It's always been particularly interesting to me, just because like right now is a moment where there are so many books. I, this is not to say like Joyce Carol Oates is right, you know, and you know with her tweets saying like white, <laughs> men, white can't men can't be can't published, published or whatever. But man, there seems to be so many Asian Americans publishing novels right now. Like have you know, like it's like. Compared to like when I was like coming up when I was like 24 years old or something, when it was basically just like Chang Rai Lee and Amy Tan and this guy Don Don Lee or something like that. I forget what his name yeah, was even. There's like three people if I go to like Labyrinth or something like that, you know. Um, and now it's like there's so many of it that it's hard to even suss out what like a, what a representation thing would be. And it almost seems like it's like there are, there's like this changing line of what counts and then what's like corny, you know? And like, those are the two, those are the two poles. It's like, oh, this counts as representation because it's X type of person who has never been seen before. And this is the most real authentic, like humanized version of this that has there ever been. And then everything else is just like, oh, it's just like representation theater or something like that. Right. Um, and I don't, I don't know the way, the way that that line gets placed has always been really interesting to me because it doesn't seem to follow any sort of logic, really. It's almost like, you know, who's published an FSG or something like that. Right? Well, and like I think they get, there was always this sort of um, implicit argument that once you reached a critical mass of a variety of kinds of novels written by a certain demographic, then you could have an actual conversation around the literary value of that thing. Mm. But I feel like what you were just saying, Jen, with Lester and the stuff that we've experienced, I think, in Asian America cuts against that a little bit, which is that still there's this, like, American fixation on criticism um, that will always kind of go to the representation angle, no matter how many products <laughs> exist, you know? So I, I, don't, I wonder, like, if there is some sort of, like, historical or temporal aspect to that, and, like, it, 10 years from now, we'll be in a different place around it. Um, that wouldn't be an argument that works more for the Asian American novel than for the black American novel, because that has like a longer history. Um, but yeah, it seems just somehow like intrinsic to the kind of production of these sorts of critical pieces. Yeah, I mean, this was a really big issue. I mean, all the way going all the way back to, you know, the Harlem Renaissance, for sure. I think, yeah. you know, exactly. um, you know, as you read about Lincoln. McKay, right, recently? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was, I think it was, um, you know, in many ways, like the Harlem Renaissance as a 
you know, as a kind of a movement was really sort of not really, you know, it was a lot of kind of disparate kind of people and kind of, you know, interests and kind of doing different kinds of things. But I think like the need to kind of consolidate it um, into one particular movement was very much sort of spearheaded by certain kind of like, you know, members of the black bourgeoisie who wanted to sort of showcase, you know, black people being literary and, um, and in a certain light and, you know, we're very conscious of like, uh, what was coming out in terms of representation. And then you had conversely people like, um, actually Langston Hughes. It's so interesting because he's been so kind of like, um, kind of sanitized and commodified, but he was, you know, like, I feel like he was always like that black history month poet whose stuff we would like kind of recite, like completely divorced. Like no one mentioned that he was like a communist, yeah. and, you know, traveled to yeah. Russia and, right. um, you know, basically told like uh, black middle class kind of leaders to just kind of like F off. I'm going to write whatever kinds of, I'm going to write about <laughs> sex and I'm going to, you know, um, we're going to publish stuff about kind of queer desire and we're not going to care what white people think. Um, but yeah, I think this is, this, you know, but I think that this is really where critics can kind of intervene and yeah. show different ways of evaluating these books. And I think that there have been, I think there are, um, you know, I, I think maybe we might, you know, I don't know if, if there's more um, Asian American fiction now than before, but there's, you know, I definitely have noticed more um, Asian American critics writing and doing really great work and, you know, and definitely sort of evaluating literature beyond, you know, beyond that framework. And, and so. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. The critical intervention stuff is, yeah, that's, that's where a lot of the stuff does sort of move. Um, I always found it, that's, I, I like reading that jazz history, like jazz critic fights more than I like writing, reading about jazz for that reason, you know, just, there's so, everything is so fraught, you know, it's like so intense. You mean like the Stanley Crouch, like dividing? Yeah, like someone like Stanley Crouch, yeah. you know, as opposed to like a Mary Baraka or something like that, right? Yeah. Like you have. Um, but it's, you know, it's like. I feel like so many, like so many, um, uh, you know, national literatures kind of get kind of, you know, in many ways, like when I was in, um, when I was doing Russian literature, just Russian literature and, um, in academia and I would present to people who weren't Russianists, you know, I could be talking about Tolstoy or something and they would always be like, but what does this say about Putin? And, you know, I think you sort of see, I see that now when I review stuff by, you know, by Russian writers, there's always like much more of a, you know, the feedback I sometimes get is just, you know, can we connect this more to what's going on um, right now? And, you know, there's always sort of an interest in kind of what this literature can sort of tell us about, you know, um, during, you know, in the 20th century, it's like, what can this tell us about the enemy? Um, what can what yeah, can this Dostoevsky yeah. novel tell us about you know um, about the communists? And I so I do I think that it's not just kind of you know um, necessarily minority fiction in the right. in the U.S. I think it's just I think there are very few literary traditions that are allowed to just kind of be just be literary. Um, you know I think just books about writers is like the one. <laughs> um. <laughs> <laughs> I reviewed this book called, it was called Chilean Poet, and uh, it was about Chilean poets, and everyone in the book was a poet, and I wrote in my review, like, you know, 
um, there's like a brief kind of interlude with a like a veterinarian and I or like a veterinary dentist or something. And I was just like, bring them back, bring them back. <laughs> <laughs> Look, that's how I felt when reading exactly. like Savage Detectives, you know, my yeah. Bologna would be like. And then I met the, I met like the, whatever's like infrarealist poet so-and-so, you know, and then we had lunch with the novelist. And I was like, how many people are, are poets in this book? Um, Chilean poets, it was probably, I don't know, is it a new book? Was it inspired by Bologna, who, yeah, also, yeah. Was a, who was... also was like a Chilean poet, right? So Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. So I did, I really did like the Savage Detectives, but, um, and in in fact, there was like this weird event that I did when I was like 23 or something like that, where the National Arts Club was launching the Savage Detectives. And I went and I like read, I was like acting as one of the, we did like an act out or something of one of the things. And I was like just like one of the people. It was very strange. But it was like my first real encounter. I was like, whoa, what is Gramercy Park? You know, I was like, what is this National Arts Club? This is the nicest oh place God. I've ever been. <laughs> Like, that's the thing that I remember most about it. I was like, they have a park with a gate and you have to have a key to get in. I was like, man, this is amazing. I better sell this novel, you know, get to work. Um, all right. So back to Gramsci, let's talk about another thing in this, which I wanted to ask you about, which is just that, um, you know, you you wrote that, you know, what, what stands out is Gramsci's conviction that cultural analysis was about recognizing patterns and value systems. And that in an article titled Socialism and Culture, he wrote that his generation must, quote, free ourselves from the habit of seeing culture as encyclopedic knowledge and men as mere receptacles to be stuffed full of empirical data and a mass of raw, unconnected facts, end quote. Such a view has done little more, he argued, than, quote, given birth to a mass of pretentious babblers who have done more, have had, who have a more damaging effect on social life than tuberculosis or syphilis. Um, yeah, can you just talk about this? This really stood out to me, you know? <laughs> so funny. <laughs> um, well, one thing I'll just say is that, you know, I really um, just enjoyed, like, kind of how really funny and unsparing Gramsci was. Like, he... Um, there's so much now about nuance and like the critic needs to be nuanced and, you know, there's, it's, it's really hard to even get like a pan, like, you know, published. Cause it's like, you know, this should really be an essay and, you know, we should be sort of trying to come up with, you know, extract ideas from it and, you know, not sort of just evaluate it on its own. And it's just so interesting, like how um, that feels like so recent to me because whenever I go back and I read reviews from not even that long ago, but certainly Gramsci's, it's just, no, it's like if something's terrible, you say so and you say why and you um, don't don't hold back um, anything. But I think that, you know, he was really I mean, I think it's I do think sometimes, you know, I know I'm a book critic, but I think that um, sometimes I do worry that kind of uh, that, that it's the more the like that it's kind of a pretentious corner of criticism and, you know, I, I'm very aware that there are people who feel better when their kids read a book than when they watch a TV show. And that that's like a very specific kind of <laughs> feeling that's kind of rooted in kind of class and, you know, um, kind of, you know, sort of privileging um, 
kind of, you know, literary culture over, you know, what's considered mass culture. <laughs> we just had this um, debate in our Discord because people were talking, were like talking about, would you ever date anyone that didn't read books? This is like a long thread in our Discord. So anyway, <laughs> but go on, go on. But <laughs> were they talking about Kanye? <laughs> oh, hilarious. Can I, can I bring up Indian matchmaker again? So I did watch it. And there's this funny part where there's this woman, she's like, I'm a reader. That's just like oh a really God. big part of my personality. I'm a reader. And then she goes on this date with this guy and he's really hot. And she's like, do you read? He's like, no, not really. And then they heard she does her confessional and she's like, and you know, I love that we bring different things to the table. Like, I love that he can't read or he doesn't read. <laughs> like, if you're hot enough, then it's fine. <laughs> I loved that. See, I love that. Awesome. And I think Gramsci would too. Like, I think that we've <laughs> like, I think that you... Um, you know, I think, you know, I love books as part of culture, but I don't, yeah. you know, I, I think for me, it's really important to see them as kind of uh, one piece of kind of a broader yeah. kind of cultural landscape and not treat them as kind of like, you know, the, the props of a, you know, of a certain kind of identity that's better than the identities right. of people who consume differently. Yeah. Yeah, that is true. The, the nuance thing is very true where, I don't know, you know, friend of the show tommy craggs once i was talking to him once about a writer and he said about this writer he was like every article is like watching somebody break dancing in the part before they actually break dance you know and they're kind of doing like the <laughs> no one can see what i'm doing but you know when they're kind of doing the warm-up yeah, the and they're warm like you know like before they actually like flip on their head or something like that <laughs> and i it's always stuck in my That's head because sometimes i feel like my own writing is sometimes like that where i'm just like well i'm just doing the warm-up here and now i'm done <laughs> but it is true of a lot of of a lot of people right and i think there is like sort of this like idea that nuance in itself is superior to like a uh, quote hot take you know but in my consumption habits i don't believe that to be true at all you know where i'm just like listen you know just come out and yell something that's going to make me angry, you know, or make someone I don't like angry. You know, those are the two, those, those are the two things. And then I'll be happy. You know? If my enemies are mad, then I'll be happy. Or if, if I'm angry, then I'll be kind of quietly happy anyway, because at least I get to do something. But yeah, there is, there is that right now. I think especially when it comes to uh, things that are more sensitive, right? Like that, that happens. And the only time people tee off is when somebody has like broken some social code. Right. Mm. And then and then they can sort of be, or if somebody's so big like Jonathan Franzen, where it's almost like a sport to see the next person who can take him down or something like that, which I also find to be yeah. sometimes a little bit boring. But like but um, maybe it's also about the marketplace, because like if you are reading the New York Times book review or, um, you know, capsule reviews in a magazine or something, then you kind of are going to that because you want to know, like, should I read this thing, which is like one kind of review. And then there's like these longer review essays like in LRB or New York Review or what, Harper's or whatever where it may be okay to just use that book as like a launching pad for a discussion of an idea or a political movement or something. You know, so I feel like there are different – we go to different kinds of reviews for different things. Right. Um, yeah. I guess like Jay, you're friends with Christian Lawrenson, right? He's been yeah. writing a lot about this I think for a number of years now about like what is a book review? Like what is its function? Like should you write ones that are just pans? Um, Jen, do you read the stuff that he's written about? Reviewing? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, what do you yeah, think about his? I mean, I take his like kind of general like cranky argument to just which like is actually pretty funny to me about like um, we're not brave enough. Like, yeah, we are doing too much of this kind of like nuanced stuff. Like it would be better if we just like said how we feel and occasionally had these like really aggressive pans of things. 
You know, I think that if, if every critic could sort of just kind of write however they wanted to, I think there would be a natural kind of distribution of pieces that are more essays and that kind of like sort of, you know, think more broadly about where this is kind of sort of fitting in in our cultural moment. And then there would also be pans. I mean, I think that, you know, I, I think that, you know, people kind of can kind of self-regulate a bit more um, than they're given credit for. I feel like there's... Um, one thing that I think find really interesting is that it's actually, it's quite hard to get a pan published. So there's, there's this whole debate about, you know, should we write yeah. pan? Should we not? But I think one thing that people don't talk about so much is that it's actually really <laughs> tough to do them at all. They get a lot of attention when they come out because there's so few of them. And I think it gives the impression that there are a lot more than there really are. Um, one thing I talk about actually a lot with other um, critics of color privately is that we actually have particularly a lot of trouble getting pans of books by minority writers published. Yeah. Um, I have had two pieces, um, you know, killed. I mean, these weren't pieces I had even written yet. So it wasn't about the quality of my review itself, but it was just kind of like, you know, um, I don't know, just want to check in before I got started. What do you think? And I had some pretty, um, some, you know, pretty severe criticism of, of two particular books, um, by black writers and in both cases you know it was like no and with not really much explanation why um they were like oh you know well you know well, sorry you didn't enjoy it we'll move on to something else and I just you know and I thought okay maybe it was just me like me but then I started talking to more and more people mm -hmm. and, and then you saw what happened with American Dirt like you know and that was more about the kind of um the topic itself rather than the writer but there's just you know I think some uh, magazines are afraid they don't feel like they have kind of um, they don't think they've sort of, you know, built up enough of a reputation, um, you know, around uh, covering uh, writers of color, covering yeah. black literature that they can risk, um, you know, panning it. And it's just the wrong way to approach the problem because then you're not really treating this literature like literature. Right. Yeah. I wish that for, I wish I had been not exempt from that role. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like listening here and like I'm like wait there I can think of one writer who got oh panned God. in a couple so of funny. <laughs> I'm like what the fuck <laughs> you know why don't I count <laughs> oh man oh, it's uh the, you have a podcast uh, uh, yeah I think it's <laughs> Jay won't suffer <laughs> I don't know I kind of got it honestly after a while I was just like I don't know like you know it's good for young writers to just kind of be to take the person they find extremely annoying and just be like, hey, fuck this person. And it's like, okay. You know? But I think institutions um, like mostly white institutions are much more nervous about like... They're definitely much more nervous, You know, about yeah. black yeah. pans right. than Asian pans. And I also think there's a level of security that one can have where it's okay to do it, you know? And I think that I, I don't know if I'm being honest, totally. I probably are past yeah. that point of security where like, it's okay to pan me. Media I'll presence. be okay. Yeah. I, it's, this is not like a debut novel where like my career is going to be destroyed by it or anything totally so it'd be it's uh it's okay yeah the 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 i don't know like i i find that having right like writing about books now which i'm going to do a lot more of i think in this new job than before like i i thought about because i used to be like a very big dale peck apologist right and i thought i used to just do it because i thought he was at least funny right for the re listeners who don't know dale peck was like uh is a book 
I, I, mean, I guess he maybe he's so canceled now that he'll never be able to publish a book review again. But um, he became very famous for writing like these things called he called them hatchet jobs. He wrote like a collection. He put out a collection of them called hatchet jobs. And they were very, 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 very mean um, reviews. I think he wrote them all for the nation or the new Republic or something like that. Right. And so like some of his famous lines are like, I think that David Foster Wallace should stand up from his word processor and be passionately fucked up the ass or something like that. Right. Stuff like that was being published. Uh, very famously, he said, Rick Moody is the worst writer of his generation. That was his lead. Wow. Um, and Dale, uh, his first novel, I actually really liked Martin and John. And I also like kind of liked his spirit because he was like getting yelled at all the time. And he was like a troll before the internet really like recognized book trolls, I think. But and also those books are those reviews are why The Believer started as a um, magazine, right? Because Heidi and Ed and all these people at Columbia decided that um, book reviewing was out of control. Yeah, I right? didn't know that. And Dale... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the an intro essay to The Believer is like a 10,000-word piece by Heidi Julevitz about basically about Dale Peck, right, and about yeah, meanness yeah, and, yeah. in book reviewing. And okay. um, I will say that, like, while I sort of ideologically agree that Dale Peck should be able to be Dale Peck and that things are healthier with Dale Peck's around, like, I find it very hard to pan a book um, just because I think about the person – and the amount of words they put in. I, know. I just don't want to that be That is mean. the thing. Yeah. Sure. yeah but you so. know what you also have? See, this is, so I, um, I was talking, I was telling my students this, you know, so I don't really have to buy books anymore. I get so many books sent to me. If I want a right. book, an old book, I can get it sent to me. Yeah. But I still make a point to, you know, um, every now and again, go and, and buy a book because this is why, because, um, I, you know, I bought this, I won't say which book it is, but, um, I saw this book, um, at a bookstore at the center for fiction in Brooklyn and, you know, had a beautiful, it was prominently displayed, um, beautiful cover blurbs from writers. I really like, um, mm -hmm. writers who, you know, are, I really like, and also her, you know, kind of doing unique stuff. Um, and, you know, it had just come out. I, I, I think I, I couldn't really find that many reviews. The couple that I did were, you know, really, really positive and, but kind of superficial. Um, but I was like, oh, you know, it's, you know, it's a debut novelist. Um, so I decided to buy the book and, you know, like a hardcover is like, you know, it's like $27 plus tax. Um, you know, that's not a small amount of money for, you know, most people. And I went home and I read it and it was so bad. It was just terrible. Like, wow. I, I mean, I just felt like totally lied to by the publishing machine. And, you know, I, I always, I just feel like it's so important to also just remember like the other person who works really hard for like their money like, that, they're, <laughs> that they use to buy. Yeah. I think you're books. totally right. Like All right. I, I'm reconsidering this. You're right. You're right. Especially like, I don't know, like Wesley Morris wrote that essay about this. If you remember, remember he wrote about like insecure, right? And he was oh, yeah. writing about how like, like he felt, he's always felt pressured to say things are better than they are if they're by people who are, you yeah. know, like people of color. And that, 
this doesn't really serve anyone, right? And then I remember when that piece came out, a lot of other critics who were white, who were like suddenly, like they're on sort of celebrating this moment. They're like, finally, you know, we can like, we have permission, you know? And then of course, none of them actually followed through with it because like, <laughs> like it's just like Wesley, I love Wesley. I think he's brilliant, but like, you know, he's like also a friend of mine, but he's not like, you know, it's not like Wesley is like the person who like decides, like, he's like, nope, you know, the switch is off now. You can't be canceled anymore. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I, I think I agree with you. Like it's, I don't know. I just feel like kind of, I just feel in some ways like oh man like you know um i wouldn't want this done to me and then but at the same time i don't know i also feel like that's probably bad and i should probably change that and maybe mix in a couple pans if the if uh the person deserves it but i don't know i i it's i just like there it almost there seems to be like a sport to it that sometimes feels like like the person has like really wound up you know and they're like, I'm taking this person down and they're never going to be yeah. the same, you know? And there are a lot of those that I've read where I've come across feeling more sympathetic to the writer. Not be- even when I agree that their work is terrible, you know, but I'm just like, wow, like, I <laughs> see, can see the sweat on your brow. That's why no one should fear a negative <laughs> review. Trust me, nothing activates your fans more. Nothing. <laughs> makes, it takes their love of you to a totally <laughs> different <That's> level. Awesome. <laughs> um, so- <laughs> Yeah, nothing to fear. Yeah, that's true. That's true. You know, it's like claiming that you got canceled is like the most powerful thing in the world. I keep trying to do it. I was like, I was canceled, but you know, no, no one actually believes me. You're like Jay, you've tweeted five thousand times in the last hours. <laughs> um, anyway. You know, someone. You know, it's funny. I was at a party, and someone was. Um, there was someone who um, worked in publishing there, and she mentioned that we were talking about a particular book and she's kind of like upset because she wasn't quite upset, but she just sort of noted that it had been negatively reviewed in the times. And I was like, I, I knew what review she was talking about. And I was like, that's so funny because I read that review and it made me want to read the book um, mm. because, you know, all the stuff the person was talking about was so interesting, even though they were like, it doesn't quite come yeah. together. I'm like, Okay, yeah, but all that stuff is still kind of. I want to watch that not right. come together. <laughs> I'd rather yeah, watch that yeah. not come together than watch something really boring work perfectly. Yeah, so right, you'd, be like, right. you'd be totally surprised. Big messes are. My, I enjoy big messes better than <laughs> tidy, tidy, unambitious books too. Especially like, uh, you know, I don't know. It's, I don't. I don't really buy the whole MFA has created this type of writing type of thing. But sometimes it's true. You know, where it's like, okay, this is a perfect book that is so small in its ambitions that like, what are we doing? I'd rather just read this big mess that has like seven sections that are super problematic or something like that. <laughs> like at least versus trying something. Um, Tammy, is there anything else that that, um, that we want to talk about here? Or Jen, is there anything else that you want to talk about? We're reaching an hour right now. Um, I mean, Jen, I just was curious if you have, because I know through your work, on Russia, you had a lot of Russia connections. And I was just curious if you had any non-book observations about what's going on right now. It seems like we might have reached a different point in the war, potentially. Yeah. um, I mean, I've been sort of watching and reading along with everyone else about um, the 
the mobilization and the, yeah. the draft, the kind of the, the partial draft that it doesn't sound very partial. Right. Um, you know, and um, yeah, it's, I mean, I think that the kind of like the message I've sort of been hearing from reporters about what the mood has been like in Russia itself has been, I mean, aside from obviously there, there are people who've um, very bravely protested and, and been jailed for it, but that the overall mood was just kind of like indifference, kind of people just sort mm-hmm. of going mm-hmm. on with their lives, you know, their personal dramas and et cetera, you know, just like Americans when our um, military is off uh, fighting foreign wars. Um, yeah. But uh, what I have heard is that this has really kind of like changed that and mm-hmm. has really sort of brought it home and you're sort of um, going to really know how people feel about the war um, now, now that it's really kind of, you know, coming home and, um, affecting people, people who have, who people, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. I saw all that footage of Dagestan, right. Where, um, people, like, I don't know. It just seems like this is always a response to drafts. Right. And, um, this one just seems, uh, difficult to even process but um putin has been i mean i was reading um uh there's um this independent um uh there's independent media company um, medusa who um Mm -hmm. publishes in english and russian Uh, i really recommend their stuff and they got a hold of kind of like the kind of propaganda talking points that the kremlin has sent out to you know like rt and stuff and they are blaming you know, the, cause they initially said that this is only going to be, uh, we're only calling back reservists, but then on the ground that has not been what's been going on. Um, the, the, the talking points were basically blaming it on the people at the recruitment center, sort of saying that they're crooked, that they, um, are signing people up for the war that the government doesn't even want, but they just, you know, want to sort of show what a good recruiter they can be and are trying to get their numbers up. They're just kind of ambitious or they're just, you know, trying to get even with their enemies. And that's like why they're putting all these like names on it who don't belong. So he's um, yeah. If you watch Russian TV, they're blaming all of the, the kind of the conscripts, like, you know, erroneous conscripts on um, the people who work at the, you know, the enlistment offices and, and really just trying to deflect. So they, they're, they're very organized and prepared in terms of propaganda. Interesting. Yeah. Right. Well, um, yeah. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. Um, good to see you, Jen. This is a great conversation. Yeah. It's the. Uh, I don't know. I'm going to think a lot harder about some of these book criticisms that I do. Television. <laughs> 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 I don't know. I feel like I, it's like I kind of had this talk with myself at some point recently where I was like, I think it's time for me to just enter my nice phase, you know? Like, I've just like, it's like too long. I'm like 42 years old. And like, I just like, I can't just like poke people in the eye and just laugh. It, like, it's just like, it's, I don't want to do that anymore, you know? I would like to be. I would like to be more like, you know, like, but then I was like, well, I don't know who can really change who they are. Uh, no, but know? no, see, I like, I like when you get emotional on Twitter and, you know, like, I love that. I mean, I feel like we need negative reviews. We need writers getting upset. I just feel like we need to be more comfortable with just emotion and 
strong opinions and everything and just in chaos. But I'm from Philly, so that's just normal for me. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know. Maybe I'll delay my great statesman era. <laughs> like he really grew up and he like united all of the Asian American studies professors together, you know, and there was a new era of solidarity. Oh, my God. <laughs> I don't have thoughts like this. I don't know. I think I need to like leave this space. This era is better than that era. (laughs) I went to lunch with somebody today and I was wearing my usual, like I have start. it's like kind of embarrassing, but I now if I leave the house, I only, I like just wear these plastic Birkenstocks everywhere. And he was like, whoa, cool shoes. And I was like, it's like, oh my God, I can't remember the last time I haven't worn these. I think the only time I don't yeah, wear them is if I, if I go play tennis and then I wear tennis shoes. So I've got, I'm like, I switch between, and meanwhile, I have like 45 pairs of stupid hype beast sneakers in my closet, of course. But I, never, <laughs> I haven't worn them like four years. <laughs> I was like, oh man, I think I need to like do things where I have to put on a different pair of shoes other than like tennis shoes or Birkenstocks, you know, like this is, I've become too. <laughs> My life is too. When you come to New York, you should have like a special pair of shoes when you (laughs) for our live event. Yeah, that's true. I'll 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 take out one of the pairs of like Jordans that I have in my closet that uh, are all in some form of falling apart because of age. Um, All right, well, Jen, thank you for coming on. Um, Thank you for having me. Is there anything you want to plug or any you know any way that people can reach you if they if they or do you want to be reached? Like you can say no. (laughs) <laughs> anything to plug uh no just i don't know climate change looks bad just try to, <laughs> to, <laughs> to <laughs> save the planet if you can i would just like to plug the planet so um, thank you <laughs> yes uh okay great um if you <laughs> Oh, wait, uh, we have- oh, and we have two things we want to plug. Yeah, the first thing is, what, Tammy, what are you plugging? I forget. Oh, yeah. So this Saturday, October 1st, we have another Seoul meetup, a big one. So if you are in South Korea, you should come onto the Discord as a subscriber and get the details for that. Um, oh, yeah. And then two, just three other quick things. Um, we're going to have, I'm having an event on October 13th um, with uh, writers in Okin- on Okinawa and the Philippines. Um so we'll put, circulate some information about that if you're interested in questions of U.S. empire literature. Um, Jay's book is in paperback very soon, so you can pre-order that. Um, and on yeah. December 1st, we're going to be having our TTSG live event at NYU, Jay Hua Shu celebrating his new memoir and me. So we'll we'll put all this stuff in the show notes. Well, now I feel like a loser. I had nothing to plug. You all had such great things. That's <laughs> why I hate I'm, going first when, yeah, for these I, things. I'm going to... Well, maybe we're I'll... continuing to read your stuff, so that's all we need to plug, right? Like, just read Jen's stuff that comes out. I'll, I'm going to pan Wa's book then. Yeah. <laughs> the entire December 1st event is just, like, picking out flaws and flaws. Yeah, I'll be like, wow, listen. <laughs> Oh Washu is the worst writer of his generation. <laughs> no, I'm, <laughs> um, I'm kidding. I read Wa's book and it's as good as everyone is saying it is right now. Um, very moving. And uh, honestly, it was like, I didn't, it's like, a, if you're familiar with this work, it is an unexpected book. Um, you know, like it is different than, than a lot of the stuff he's written in the past. And 
I think in like a way that's like very cool. So read that book. You can come to our event on December 1st. Um, and yeah, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com or you can support the show for five dollars a month at patreon.com slash ttsg pod or on substack at goodbye.substack.com um until next week tammy i expect you to be in some other <laughs> with some other background in some other type of room um and jen thanks again bye, bye.